Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you to worship you and adore you, for you are a great God. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together once again to close our day by sitting under the preaching of your word, by coming together to worship you in songs of praise. Thank you that we can join together, even in this moment, and bring before you our various prayer requests, knowing that you are our Heavenly Father, and that though you are the creator of the entire universe, and that you sustain all that you have created by your mighty hand, and yet, Lord, we are mindful that you have chosen to enter into a relationship with us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. And so, Lord, while we worship you for your works of creation, we also worship you for the work of redemption, for saving sinners such as us, saving us while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, not because of anything that you saw in us, but simply for your glory. We thank you for the great God that you are, that there is no one like you in the whole universe, and that though many false gods arise and men come up with all kinds of philosophies and theologies, we know that there is one God in heaven and in earth, that there is no other God like you. And what a joy it is for us to be able to know you, our great God, as you are revealed to us through your word. Thank you that we can know you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we can know you as you have been revealed to us throughout the pages of Scripture. And that as we study your word, we have confidence that what we read and what we meditate upon is your word, your spoken word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate to the deepest thoughts of our minds and our hearts. What a privilege it is that you have given us your word that has been preserved throughout the centuries. Though there have been several attacks on it, Lord, you have kept it. And as we survey history, we have no doubt, we have confidence that it is by your sovereign hand that your word has been preserved and that these things have been written for us. Thank you that we can come to your word with this confidence and we have a comfort that you have not left us in this world as strangers as those groping in the dark for the truth, but rather you have made it plain to us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to us believers, who lives in us and who enables us to grow in Christ-likeness. And through his work in our lives, we're able to grow daily in our love for you and in our love for one another. Now, great God, as we come into your presence this evening, we are we come with hearts full of thankfulness as we think about how you have been gracious and merciful to us in more ways than we can number. We thank you for even this past week as we faced uh, extreme temperatures of how you have kept each one of us safe, that you have, you have enabled us to continue enjoying uh, the privileges that we are able to enjoy, that we've had water and electricity and you've granted us safety on the roads. You've given us food to eat and warm shelter to live in. 
We pray that you would help us to be a thankful people, never taking any of these things for granted, but realizing that they come from your good hand. So Lord, we thank you for how you have brought us through to the end of another week and to the starting of a new week, cognizant of the fact that life comes from you and that you hold all things in your hands. And though we may not understand all the details, we trust that you, our Heavenly Father, have our best interest at hand, that you have our eternal good in mind and your glory at heart. And so, Father, as we come before you, we have many needs. As we think of all our plans and all our desires, even in the coming up week, we lay before you the Deep South Founders Conference. And as we have many things yet to get done, and as we look forward to the, uh, the great feast of your word that will, will be here uh, this coming weekend, we pray that you would enable us to take care of all the logistics and all the tasks that still need to be performed. We pray for safety over each person that will be working uh, even on this building and uh, working behind the scenes to ensure that the, the, the conference flows smoothly. May you grant each of us grace and wisdom. May your name be glorified and magnified in this place as we come together to hear the preaching of your word. We think of the speakers, we think of the preachers who will be here this coming week. We ask that you'd grant them safety as they travel, but that you'd also um, be with them as they prepare to proclaim your word that you would enable them to declare your word with power and authority, that you would give them clarity of speech, that through their preaching the church would be built up and unbelievers converted. We pray, Father, for all those that are sick in our midst and those that have continued to be unwell in the, in the recent past. We thank you for the healing and recovery that you have give, you've given to many, and we do continue to ask that you would um, strengthen and, and grant healing. And for those that are dealing with ongoing illnesses, we pray, Lord, for much strength and grace, that they would not be discouraged by the ailing body, but that their hope would be in you and an eternal home where we will no longer suffer, where we will no longer struggle with our fleeting bodies, but we will renew, we'll be renewed and receive our new bodies. And Lord, we continue to pray also, thinking of the the budget that is to be sent out and all our plans for the upcoming year. Your word reminds us that it is, it is for us to plan, but it is your will that comes to pass. And so even with this budget, Lord, we submit it into your hands, asking that you would provide for us, that you would enable us to do the ministries that we have desired to do this coming year, and that you would enable us to continue being a church that is generous, a church that supports your kingdom work across the world and should continue to use us for that end, that the nations would know of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also want to pray for our neighborhood, our Jerusalem that you have given to us, this hill on which you have placed us to be a light amidst a dying world. We thank you for the opportunity we have to reach our community with the gospel for the number of members that have joined our church from the community. We pray that you'd continue to use us to be an influence in our neighborhood, that many would know that the gospel is proclaimed faithfully from this pulpit, and that they would be drawn to come to you, in whom alone there is the words of eternal life. We pray that you would draw many here to this church, that they would hear the gospel, 
and that you would be pleased to convert them. For Lord, we know that we have no other hope save our hope in you. We also commit our city into your hands. We know, Lord, that you have placed over us those who are in positions of authority, those who have been called to take care of your land. We ask that you would grant them wisdom, that you would help them to lead uh, with a servant-hearted leadership, that they would not seek their own interests alone, but that they would put the needs of the people before those of their own. We pray, Lord, as we continue to receive visitors, that you would be pleased to add to our number and that they would be, they would be drawn once again to this church uh, where your word is proclaimed, and that they would find a home here to be a part of this body of believers. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we come to it with expectation. We come with it, come to it expecting to hear from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable me not to be uh, in the way of the message, but that you would speak through me. And even as John the Baptist said, we pray that you would increase, and that I would decrease. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to us with clarity and with authority. Help us to leave this place encouraged and with a renewed confidence in your word, which has been kept for us and has, written, has been written down for us. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn with me to 1 John, and this evening we'll be, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. 1 John, and we'll look at verses 1 through 4. And last week, uh, Dirk gave us the introduction for this uh, series that we are hoping to work through. Um, and so I won't reiterate a lot of what Dirk already covered in terms of the, the background information and, and some of those details which are very helpful for us to keep in mind as we uh, engage the text today and going forward. But if you weren't able to be here last week or you haven't heard that message yet, I'd really encourage you to go and listen to that at some point. Uh, that would be very helpful uh, as we go through this series. So as we come to these four verses, we have the prologue to this epistle. Uh, we see that the apostle John here uh, is introducing the letter in, in a different way. We, we usually look at the prologue or the introduction to the epistles where uh, the writer is introducing himself and is also addressing uh, the audience uh, in the usual from and to kind of setting, uh, kind of format. But uh, what we have in these verses is slightly different, and yet his introduction is also still very helpful for what is to follow in the rest of this letter. Uh, the prologue really gives us an introduction to what is going to follow in this section, but also in the letter at large, and we see uh, John in this introduction giving us a heart of what he is concerned about and what he wants to write about. Um, though the words themselves might seem plain to understand at first reading, there's actually a lot in these verses that we, we could unpack and a lot that could even get us bogged down in the details. And so we won't go chasing rabbit trails per se, but we do want to appreciate um, the beauty of this text and, and, and appreciate it for our own edification and building up in the faith. So I'll begin reading 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, 
concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add a blessing to it. So even as we read these verses, we see how John begins a thought and then he, he, he circles back. He adds in a parenthetical statement there in verse 2 and then he goes back to repeat something he's already said. And uh, as, we, as we continue through this epistle, we'll see that that tends to be John's style and is somewhat circular in his uh, development of his argument, but it's quite, again, beautiful the way he has put it together, and ultimately the Holy Spirit has inspired him uh, to write this portion of Scripture. And so as we come to this uh, passage this evening, uh, we, we'll, we want to appreciate here what, what we see in these verses. We want to appreciate that we must have confidence in the apostolic message, and we must hold fast to the apostolic message that was delivered to us uh, by the apostles and preserved for us throughout the centuries. And as we study uh, this portion of scripture, my hope and prayer is that that confidence that we have as we hold to a high view of scripture will just be further enhanced and deepened and we would go away encouraged of, of what God has done for us in preserving his word throughout the ages. So notice that as uh, as Paul, uh, sorry, as John uh, opens up his letter here, um, he gives us the introduction of what he is going to further elaborate in his letter, as I already mentioned. Um, and though what John is writing to the specific context uh, has, there is a historical context to which he's writing, um, as we will we'll see in just a moment. But what he has to say is quite relevant to us today um, as we are bombarded by what the world has to offer to us in, by way of philosophy and uh, different ideas and uh, a lot of what we find ourselves faced with in the media right now is contrary to what the scriptures have to teach us. And that while we are constantly bombarded by untruths and lies from the world, we as Christians are called to hold fast to the confession that we have made. We are told to hold to what the scriptures teach us. And how are we then to continue being bombarded by this kind of information and still hold true to the word of God, to hold true to this doctrine uh, that is found for us in the scriptures? Um, to, give, to illustrate this point, as we, as we look at the news uh, information that is given to us every day, and as we look at various news channels, uh, nowadays it's become very common for us to see graphic, in, uh, graphic content without any, any warnings prior to that kind of information being uh, put in front of us. But that was not the case when television was still new, uh, when, when, when news was still a new feature in, in our media and in our multimedia. A lot of the time there would be announcements prior to some kind of graphic imagery, uh, violent imagery that was going to be portrayed on the TV screen. There was always a warning that was going out before it to prepare us in case you want to switch off the television screen or you want to not look at what is going to come. But with time, that sensitization has, has 
steadily decreased to the point where what we see today, uh, perhaps those who were in the time when the television first came out would have been horrified that it's just uh, broadcast so freely. Coupled with that, obviously, we have the internet and social media and, and video clips that are circulated so easily and that you have to always uh, filter through when you're facing the internet. My point is that as you constantly are bombarded by this information, uh, with time you become desensitized. And that's what can happen to us if we're constantly faced by what the world has to offer to us, by the lies and the constant uh, attack of what the scriptures stand for. If we are constantly faced by these things, with time we become desensitized uh, to what the world has to say. And with time, it seems less and less uh, horrific to us. And that is one of, the, one of the strategies that the world uses to desensitize us, to make us comfortable with the things that are not uh, okay, that are not in line with what the scriptures teach us. So in, face, in the face of that, how then should we as Christians continue uh, with sound doctrine, holding to what the scriptures teach us? Well, one of the blessings we have is to have a body of believers within which we can come together and attend to the means of grace. Uh, we can be in the word of God and we can continue learning and, and contrasting what the word has to teach us against what the scriptures teach us. The, I, the, the solution is obviously for us not to withdraw from the world uh, because Jesus himself said that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And so we are to engage the world that we live in and at, at the same time, we need to be discerning. We need to guard ourselves against the errors and against becoming desensitized to the things that the world constantly throws at us, especially those things that are contrary to the scriptures. So we must be careful about what we expose ourselves to. And so as we turn to today's passage this evening, looking at our verses, uh, we see that John here is encouraging uh, his writers to hold to, to, to his readers to hold fast to the doctrine which he proclaimed to them. And he wants them to have confidence that the word that he received and he has preached and continues to hold on to uh, was one that he witnessed firsthand and he has passed along to them. Therein lies the confidence that, that they are to have and in turn we are to have in God's word. So my encouragement this evening then is that we must hold fast to the apostolic message, firstly, because of the nature of the message, secondly, because of the content of the message, and thirdly, because of the goal of the message. And so we'll keep those three headings in mind as we seek to delve into this passage of Scripture and see what, Paul, what John uh, is trying to encourage his readers in, in their faith. And as we've seen, even from our introduction last week, uh, the church was plagued with uh, heresies and with those who had crept into the church uh, seeking to, to turn people away from the faith, seeking to, uh, to entice people with false doctrine. And in the face of that, John wants his readers to know that they can have confidence in the message that has been proclaimed and that if they hold to any other doctrine, uh, they will not have fellowship with the apostles, but also with, uh, ultimately, with God the Father. So then, let's look at our first point here this evening, the nature of the message, the nature of the message. You'll notice the emphasis in our verses that is repeated, uh, starting in verse 1, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. And then again, he carries on after his uh, inter interjection there in verse 2. He goes back in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So the emphasis here is again on the fact that they are eyewitnesses. The apostles are eyewitnesses. And the emphasis on this on the senses that they were able to see with their own eyes the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that he is the subject of these verses. That which we have seen from, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Emphasis is on the first-hand account. The, the apostles, the disciples were there with Jesus Christ, they walked with him. They heard him teach. They were able to see him. They were able to touch him. And even, as we will see later on, even in his resurrection, he had a physical body that they were able to interact with. And so the emphasis here is that the apostles, the disciples, whatever doctrine, whatever teaching, the gospel that they are proclaiming is not of their own account, is not of their own understanding, but what they are teaching, they have experienced firsthand, and they have learned from Jesus Christ himself. We learn that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the emphasis here is that these eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus, who lived with him, and, and we see this aspect coming out even when uh, the apostles in Acts are discussing how they are going to replace Judas Iscariot. Uh, it's one of the qualifications that this man, whoever is going to replace Judas Iscariot must have been someone who walked with Jesus, who saw his miracles, who heard, um, who heard him preach, and who learned from him firsthand. So the apostles experienced and learned what they teach firsthand from Jesus Christ. In the second place, we notice that they testify of what they witnessed. Again, looking at verses 2 and 3, we see this emphasized. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. And then we go down in verse 3. That which we have, heard, we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And we must appreciate here that the, the disciples, uh, the apostle John particularly here, he wants to emphasize that what he is preaching, what he is teaching uh, the church, and what he continues to proclaim as he, as, he, as he goes around in the churches preaching, is that he did not get this message on his own account. And this is radically different to what some other world religions have to say. Uh, for example, if we are to look at uh, Islam, and, and this past month I've, I've had to read, do a bit more reading from the Quran, for example, for one of my classes, uh, at RTS. And so when we look at what the Quran stands behind and their view of revelation, 
we, they believe that uh, Allah spoke to Muhammad in the cave, and throughout the next 20 years or so, there is continuing revelation through this prophet Muhammad. But what is interesting is that if you look at their doctrine of revelation and their doctrine of the scripture of the Quran, uh, they believe that the revelation that comes later on uh, supersedes what preceded. So essentially, you can have a situation where Allah is saying something in one chapter, and then five chapters down the line, or even two verses sometimes, he changes his mind on that, or there's a revision or an addition. But our God is not like that. When we look at the scriptures of, of the Bible, the New and the Old Testament, we don't have that. Again, if we're thinking about uh, Islam and the Quran, the, the revelation that they have, they claim that it comes through the Prophet Muhammad. And this is one person through whom they believe Allah spoke and he then wrote down the Quran uh, for, for this faith of Islam that is followed by so many people around the world today. And so they place their confidence on one man. And as you read the Quran, it's, it's very evident that this is not inspired scripture. Uh, though they believe that there is a perfect copy of the Quran with Allah in heaven, and what is the, is the earthly copy is what they have right now, uh, it's very clear as you read through the Quran that that is not the case. Uh, there are so many changes which are clearly prone to human error, and uh, it's, it's a man-made document. That's very evident from reading the Quran. But when you see the scriptures, we see that the apostles, uh, particularly in our section here, they're emphasizing that the message that he has proclaimed, he received it, and he has been diligent not to add on to it, uh, not to bring in his own ideas and thoughts, but rather he has proclaimed what he has seen. He is essentially a, he is testifying to that which he has already seen firsthand. And another point that we, will, uh, we, we are going to see and develop a little bit further is the emphasis Paul continues to... Uh, well, I'm going to get this right eventually. John, right? We're looking at John. So John continues to say, we, throughout this passage of Scripture. He continues to say we. And, and the, the reason he's doing that, that is not the royal we, as we, as we talk about, uh, but it's the emphasis that he stands with the apostles, the other apostles, the company of apostles. And elsewhere we see Paul um, talking about how he is an apostle in his own right. Uh, he is one who has been born differently to the other apostles, but yet he has that apostolic authority. So each apostle uh, that was chosen by Christ has that authority, and yet they also stand together as a collective body of apostles. And that's the emphasis that, that John is trying to bring out in these verses. He continues to use that first person plural, we, we, we. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. And so he wants to show that the message that he proclaims is not on its own, but he stands with the rest of the apostles with the message that has been proclaimed by the other disciples as they have preached. And so, as we look at Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, we read, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this goes to our doctrine of inspiration. We see that though we talk about organic inspiration in that each author of these portions of scripture 
bring into the writing their own personality, their own circumstances, and, and the historical background from which they are writing. And yet we can say that each of them are not writing on their own account. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we see here in Second Peter, and what they write down uh, is inspired of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can say that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed, and this is not the cleverly devised doctrines of man. Rather, it's the very words of God coming from his mouth. And so as we think about this aspect of how the apostles witnessed to the message, and as John speaks about how he witnessed firsthand the life of Christ, his miracles, his teaching, he then seeks to testify um, to, to us through the scriptures. And we too have this responsibility, though not in the same way that the apostles have, but to bear testimony of what God is doing in our lives, but also to bear witness to the gospel uh, wherever we have been sent, wherever we are sent to, to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, we are to testify. Ours is not to alter the gospel. Ours is not to add to it or take away from it, but we are to uh, testify to the gospel as the scriptures have revealed it to us. And so, J. Gresham Machen says, Christianity is based upon an account of something that happened, and the Christian worker is primarily a witness. So we are not creating anything new in history. There's a historical point in time where Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he lived on this earth, and then he died on the cross, was buried, and then raised again. That has already taken place, and so we have nothing to add to that. We simply bear witness to that, and that's why... Sometimes we, we speak about going out to preach the gospel uh, in, in another way and say we are going out to witness. We are going to witness to the gospel that we have already received. We are not adding, we are not giving something new uh, out. Then we come um, to the point I mentioned earlier on that, the, that John here is, is trying to emphasize that he stands with this company of other apostles that his message is not his alone, but that he has uh, unity with the other apostles uh, who also preach the gospel. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 7, here Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so here in First Corinthians, Paul is saying how all the apostles have witnessed the resurrection firsthand. Uh, they, they not only witnessed the resurrection, but they, uh, they were able to walk with him and they, they, are, they are passing on what they first received. And here, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, uh, he says that I have delivered to you of first importance what I received, what I myself received, I'm also passing that message on. Again, the emphasis here is that the apostles were very mindful 
and conscious that the message that they were to deliver was an unalterated gospel. They were not going to add anything to it. They were not going to change anything to it. And Paul, again, emphasizes that in Galatians. He says that if anybody else is to add or change the gospel, even if an angel came and preached a different gospel, uh, they are to be anathematized. They are, they are not to believe the message that has come through these means. They are to hold fast to the gospel that Paul himself first preached. And so similarly here we see John in 1 John uh, trying to emphasize that the message that he has proclaimed, he stands with the other company of apostles. In the second place, we must look at the content of the message. And essentially this is Jesus Christ himself. As we look at these verses, verses 1 to 4, if we were to ask who is the subject of these verses, well, it would be Jesus Christ. Starting from verse 1, even we see that which was from beginning. He is speaking of Christ. And though people, commentators have differed on what is the subject here, I think it is clear, both from the context uh, and, and with a closer examination even of, of the Greek language itself, that what is being spoken of here is Christ, Jesus Christ. So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the subject here is Christ. And he continues, as we have seen from these verses, unpacking all that he has to say here concerns Christ. So the message they have proclaimed, the gospel they have delivered, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we begin, first of all, considering this aspect that we see in verse 1, that which was from the beginning. And obviously, as we read this, uh, our mind immediately jumps to John, the gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the, um, from the beginning, we, we have there in John chapter 1. And so we'll spend a bit of time going back and forth from John 1 and, and 1 John. In the beginning was the word we see in John chapter 1 and verse 1. And the word was with God and the word was God. And so that's one point, and that obviously takes us further back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so this link that John is intentionally making is, is to help us think and ought to help us to think a little bit more about what John is doing here. Though in the gospel, in John chapter 1, what, what, what John seeks to emphasize there uh, is he's looking at uh, the deity of Christ in John chapter 1, the deity of Christ, the fact that Christ is fully God and the emphasis in that chapter, in the opening verses of John, uh, highlights that aspect. However, as we come to First John here and uh, as, as we think of what the, the recipients were facing at the time, it becomes clear that what John wants to emphasize in the epistle here is Christ's humanity, that Jesus really came in the flesh. He was a physical person and he came down, he had a body. And so it's talking about the incarnation. And so that emphasis, we must spend a little bit more time thinking about and, and considering why it is so important that Christ really did come in the flesh. Um, one of the heresies that crept into the church, and we see it here, uh, John writing about it in this epistle, is docetism. Docetism uh, proclaimed or believed that Jesus Christ didn't actually come in the flesh, uh, but rather it just appeared so. 
that he just appeared to be in the flesh, and, and it also negates some of the aspects of his sufferings. Uh, so what we, what we must understand about Docetism is that though it, uh, it's only in the third century that it develops more and reaches kind of the peak of the doctrine, it wasn't necessarily a unified teaching. Uh, there were different strands of this Docetism. Uh, it was often uh, linked with Gnosticism, uh, as Dirk was talking about last week when he, when he gave us the introduction. And so this doctrine of, of claiming that Christ didn't actually come in the flesh was very destructive to the church. And, and John here is writing to caution the believers that to, 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 to embrace such a teaching is really heresy. It actually uh, goes against what the true gospel proclaims and preaches. And so he wants to warn them from this heresy. And he, and he does that throughout this epistle and even in, in, in 2 John he talks about it. Uh, his emphasis there is that those who hold to such a doctrine, who deny that Christ came in the flesh, uh, essentially are not believers. They are the Antichrist. And, and we read about that in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, and, and we'll, we'll look at that in more detail when we get to that portion uh, in our series. But also in 2 John and verse 7, he, he says the same, that those who deny that Christ came in the flesh are the Antichrist. And so the magnitude of this heresy to, pro, to proclaim and to claim that Christ didn't come in the flesh is, is highlighted for us by the way John is dealing with such people, by the way he, he calls them the Antichrist. They, are, they have no portion with believers. And as we will see here, that the importance of holding to true doctrine uh, Distancing ourselves from such heresies is so important because it really gets to the heart of what it is to be a Christian, uh, as we will see later on, that those who do not hold to true doctrine do not have fellowship with God. And if a Christian doesn't have fellowship with God, then there is, there is no Christianity because that is what being a Christian is all about, is to have fellowship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ. That is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. And so as we think about heresies, and even in our world today, there are, there are many different um, false doctrines out there, many, many different positions, many things that people hold to, many things that are not the gospel, though they may have gospel associated with the movement, gospel attached to the name of the movement. They do not preach the true gospel. And it's important for us when we, are, when we are considering heresies, it is no longer a matter of intellect and a matter of an academic debate and discussion. Uh, it really comes down to this point that I, I just mentioned earlier. We need to see that holding to a heretical position robs us with fellowship with God. And that is, that is the heart of the issue here. It is no longer about who is smarter, who has the better arguments. We need to go back to thinking that somebody who holds to a heretical position, the end, the ultimate point that they're going to get to is damnation. And so we ought to move towards them with love because we are concerned for their souls. And so many times when we get engaged in academic debates and um, we, we are seeking to win arguments with other people, we are no longer concerned for the other person's soul. We are no longer seeking to win them over to Christ, but we are trying to win the argument. 
And so we need to think what is, what is of greater value, a soul or an argument? So that, that, that should give us pause to think about how we engage those who proclaim to be Christians but clearly deny the essentials of the faith. And, and that's important. We must remember what is essential in our faith. When we are talking about being Christians, what comes to the heart of our faith and what, what, what can be considered as being a heretical position. There are things that are on the fringes that we can talk about and that we wouldn't qualify or classify someone as a heretic for holding to such differences. But the matters that are essential, we do need to be concerned about. And so if we looked at the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39, and the answer that is provided there, it, it, it provides us with some clarity because when we are dealing with falsehoods, uh, we notice that when we take a, a, a heretical position or any false teaching that is out there, one way to, 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 to help somebody see the errors that they are holding on to is to take it to its logical conclusion. Many times when you take such a teaching to its logical conclusion, it becomes very clear why the error that they're holding to is so dangerous. So listen to the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, if you don't have the, the catechism in front of you, it, it can seem like uh, a lot to try and wrap your head around. There's essentially about seven reasons that are given in the answer of this question uh, but you might want to just take down the reference. That's Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39. And you can look back over that perhaps at a later point. But it's important because it shows us essentially to deny that Christ came in the flesh would be to deny the, the atonement that we have through his death on the cross. It would be to deny the propitiation that Christ made for us, for our sins. It would be to deny, essentially, our salvation. And so if Christ did not come in the flesh, then there is no salvation for us. Because our sins, as Brother Thomas showed us this morning, our sins are many. They are real sins. They are not imaginary. They are actual sins that are performed against a holy God. And so... Um, a, 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 a mediator who comes, who doesn't actually come in the flesh, but is a figment of your imagination, can do nothing to appease a thrice holy God. And that's where we need to think about this, and we need to consider why such a heresy was so destructive to the church. It cannot be embraced. Because if Christ did not come in the flesh, then our hope is in vain. There was no death on the cross. There was no atoning sacrifice. And we are no longer reconciled to God. And so we are destined for an eternity in hell. That is the difference. So let's, let's think about false doctrine and false teachings in this particular way. 
let's approach it with a heart of love and concern, realizing that at the end of the day, it's no longer an intellectual or academic argument, but the heart of the matter is souls that are perishing. It's lostness in the world. It's denial of the sacrifice that was made for our sins. But then if Christ did come in the flesh, as we see the emphasis in our verses, then Christ was resurrected in the flesh. And we see this in, um, both in the gospel accounts, but if you're looking at John, particularly John chapter 20, verse 20, verse 25, 27, we see that the resurrected Christ had a physical body. He is able to tell Thomas, do not doubt, place your finger here. We see that Jesus had a meal with the disciples after his resurrection and that he was seen by so many people as we already read earlier on. He had a physical body when he was resurrected. And so if he had a physical body before his resurrection, then it only makes sense in this context that he was raised in the flesh. And so too we know that we can have hope that our resurrection will also be a bodily re resurrection one day. We will be resurrected because we have hope that Christ himself was resurrected. So if Christ really came in the flesh, then we also see that he, uh, from the scriptures, that he was resurrected in the flesh. But in terms of the message that we are considering, the nature of this message, uh, or the content of the message itself, uh, we, we notice that it's, the message is one of eternal life. And we look again at our verses, verse 2 and 3. We see that, and I'll start from uh, the beginning of verse Verse 2, so the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And so we see that uh, this theme that John emphasizes throughout the gospel, but also here in his epistle, the emphasis on eternal life, that Christ himself is the source of all life. And apart from Christ, we have no life. Uh, this is the emphasis here. And the message they proclaimed is one of eternal life, that through believing in Christ, uh, his death and resurrection, we have eternal life. But he also emphasizes in these verses that this life uh, he talks about the word of life in verse 1, and then the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life. So Christ himself, who was with the Father in the beginning, from the beginning of, even before the creation of the world, has come into this world, and that life has been proclaimed to all those who believe in Christ. And that eternal life is what the message of the gospel is about, that he preaches John continues to proclaim this good news that through Christ there is life and fullness of life even as we read, in, uh, we read about in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Christ has come that we may have life and life in its fullness. This is the message that John proclaims and he, and he encourages his readers to hold fast to this message, not to any other doctrine because that doctrine does not lead to life. 
And that is his emphasis, that that doctrine will not lead to life. So having considered the nature of the message and then looking at also the content of the message, we come in the last place to look at the goal of the message. And I've teased on this point already a little bit, so we'll just touch on a few more points and then head to a close. We see the goal of the message from our verses very clearly made for us in verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All of this comes to a goal. The purpose that is given for us here in verse 3 is that we may have fellowship. Uh, He emphasizes here that them as the apostles have proclaimed this message, and they, the apostles, have fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's an invitation to believe in this gospel, have fellowship with us as we together have fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. This is the invitation he makes to them. He calls them in. He says, hold fast to this gospel. And through this gospel, together, we are united in one flesh, in one body, as a body of believers, and together we worship our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the emphasis he wants to make as he has been making his way to show that to hold to any other doctrine, to hold to any other gospel, they will not have this fellowship. They won't have fellowship with the apostles, but more importantly, they won't have fellowship with God the Father. And so, as we have already seen, this, this separation that takes place, that right, wrong doctrine will not unite us with Christ, but it will separate us from Christ. And so you have heard it perhaps many times said that doctrine divides. Yes, it divides, but it divides truth from error. Doctrine divides truth from error. Because without the right doctrine, we can't really have true fellowship. We can't truly have unity. And so many people, many, many groups who deny the emphasis on doctrine and on, even on confessionalism, they say we do not want to have a confession. We do not want to hold to doctrine. Uh, Christ is enough for us. No creed, but Christ. People who hold to this essentially don't have the kind of unity that we can enjoy by holding true to the the truth of the gospel, to true doctrine. So the emphasis in order for us to have true unity is that it must be based on truth. Otherwise, it is simply going to be a superficial kind of unity, one that appears to be a body of believers united, but at the heart of it, the, matter, the problem is that we are not really talking about issues of doctrine. We are not addressing matters of truth of the gospel. And because of that, the unity that exists is just superficial. It's artificial. It does not actually exist. So the emphasis here on doctrine and for the need to hold to the true doctrine is that we see the end, is that we enjoy fellowship with one another, with the church of Christ, and ultimately with God through Jesus Christ. And lastly, we notice that the, the goal, the second goal we might say here in, in verse 4 is that we, he says, we are writing these to you so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. 
The emphasis here is that these believers who have come to faith in Christ, who have at least professed uh, their faith in Christ, if they are to continue in their faith, uh, their joy as apostles, their joy would be complete, knowing that the work that they had begun in these believers has been seen to completion. They have held fast to the apostolic message which was proclaimed. They have not embraced other error, which would give them much grief and much sorrow. They would weep over these uh, saints that had once professed the faith. But even in John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And so too in Second John, verse 12, he says, um, similarly, Second John and verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. And so this is, we see the heart, the pastoral heart that John has, is that his, his desire is that they would continue in the faith at which they once proclaimed. That they would continue in this faith that they once proclaimed and would not fall away. Through this, their joy would be made complete. Their joy would be full as they see these believers being built up in Christ and, and coming uh, to the end of their time having held fast to the profession that they once made. And so as we, as we come to the end of uh, our, our time together this evening, my hope and prayer is that we would leave this service having been encouraged to hold fast to the apostolic message, having considered the nature of this message, the content of this message, and the goal of the message. I hope that we leave this place seeing that the, the, the problem with heresy and the, the problem with embracing anything apart from the true gospel that has been delivered to us uh, through the apostles and the saints of old is that doing so robs us of fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And that should lie at the heart of our engagement with all kinds of uh, heresies and false doctrines that is out there. Our heart should be to win souls and not win arguments. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth and which you have given to us, which is a guide for our feet in this world as we navigate through the various teachings and doctrines that come at us. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but that you have given us both your word and the faculties to be able to discern. And most importantly, you have not left us as orphans in this world but you have given us your promised Holy Spirit who enables us to distinguish truth from error. 